0: The incremental to Exponential podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast series from Capita, where we explore how big companies can innovate to survive and grow. I'm Justine Green, and each time we'll be meeting a special business guest to hear their story and opinion on our theme. We're also joined by Vivek Wadwa and Ishmael Amla, authors of the new book, From Incremental to Exponential, How Large Companies Can See the Future and Rethink Innovation. Vivek is a technology entrepreneur and academic based in Silicon Valley. Hello, Vivek.
1: Hi there.
0: (laughs) And Ishmael is Capita's Chief Growth Officer in London. Hi, Ishmael.
2: Hey, Justine. Good to speak to you again.
0: And let's welcome our special guest, Andrew Bester, among a number of roles, the former CEO of the Co-operative Bank. Hello, Andrew. Hi, hello. You're originally from South Africa, I understand, Andrew, but you've been in the UK for quite some time now.
3: Yep, 28 years. So yeah, more than half my life now.
0: Now, Andrew, you've managed large scale transformation in banking at the Co-op Bank and Lloyds Banking Group. Let's start by asking you, is there anything unique about the innovation challenges in your sector compared with other areas of business?
3: Well, I think one of the features of banking, certainly sort of for long standing banking organizations is they're always dealing with a, a combination of legacy infrastructure and a very fast changing world from a digitization point of view. So in terms of innovation within that environment, it's how do you marry up the reality of the legacy infrastructure that is that sometimes has been in place for 40, 50 years against industries that are changing very fast. So you're continually trying to, on the one hand, make sure you're at the cutting edge of innovation, but also trying to create a really realistic narrative of how you take your organisation from where it is to where it needs to get to.
0: So what would you say generates best innovation?
3: Well, I think for me, I always start with culture. Do you create an environment in the organisation that it lets people start to uh, be creative about what the problems are in the organisation? And then crucially with that, a curiosity. So I think certainly as a leader, if you don't create um, a culture that it fosters um, an environment where people can contribute um, and indeed sort of feel like they can make a difference, um, then you, certainly in, in, in big companies of long standing, you won't get the innovation happening.
0: When it comes to providing competitive service levels, many organisations benchmark themselves against other companies, Amazon being a great example of customer service. Let me ask all three of you, how important is it to make comparisons like this?
1: You know, Justine, what ultimately matters is uh, the level of service you provide your customers and the success you have financially. Now, uh, it's interesting that uh, Andrew recognized that his biggest challenge is culture because he has a history of turnarounds. Most people with his resume are ruthless, they're cost cutters, and they go in and, uh, you know, they start hacking up the companies and doing dramatic things. He focused on culture. Andrew? Yeah, so for me, in terms of back to your question on
3: customer particularly, I mean, certainly for me, um, a focus on the customer is a way to galvanize the whole organization towards ultimately um, the people who pay the bills. And so I always think it's very important that you use the customer lens as a as a cultural enabler for, the, for, for people, because it's really important that people understand what they do and how they make a difference. So in the banking context, am I helping someone buy a home? Am I making sure that I can help them with their savings? So I always think that customer access is important important and then once you've got that then it's how do you then start to create a spirit of excellence around that and then absolutely benchmarking is important it's important to see what companies at the cutting edge are doing for their customer and then how do you bring that to life so i've always take customers as the primary axis in managing transformation in the company. And then it's how do you mobilize everyone against that? And, and for me, I benchmark success, if I can get the whole company thinking about the customer and the client and everything they do. And with that goes a whole myriad of measurement frameworks, a curiosity of what's happening externally, what best in class looks like, and then how you mobilize your teams towards that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I just build on that actually, because if you think about customer experience and benchmark, it's a holistic, feeling and an experience that a customer gets. I mean, it's whether the provider performs the random act of kindness, whether the provider is phoning customers um, with something that might be running late, uh, whether you send a personal apology, that kind of thing. And I think that is not easily done in terms of a standard uh, benchmarks that you would pick up probably from the marketplace. What I find really interesting right now, actually, is the benchmark is probably the last experience you gave to a customer and what we find now of course is that the feedback is instantaneous right so with social media um, instantly you get a view of whether the customer is happy or not happy uh, and i was reading something where um, customers who use social media to give feedback actually expect a response within 60 minutes and actually a bunch of them actually expect the response within 30 minutes so for large organizations like the organizations that Andrew's been working in. I mean, this is quite a shift, Andrew, right? From how we used to look at benchmarks and look for feedback to how we get it now.
3: well, I think it's a great point because... I mean, the feedback's happening so fast now. So the, the positive with that is you need to be watching your social channels, starting to understand things and customer experience metrics that, that would have been in place. Yeah, you know, go back to sort of my work at Standard Chartered in the retail bank in oh seven oh eight. Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of almost backward looking customer experience benchmarks, which we did very diligently, we worked well on. But the pace at which you needed feedback is now so instantaneous. And you then got to build that into your overall frameworks as to what are we doing? What are the choices we're making in the company? um be there tactically today to fix something versus how you inform your strategic evolution from a customer perspective.
0: Banking has seen a revolution in its IT systems. How would you compare this digitization with that of a large organization like Capita, Ishmael?
2: I'd say that in terms of digitization, probably three or four areas uh, that are consistent across the two industry sectors. You know, customer experience we've just talked a, a little bit about that Data, uh, the availability of data, cloud, everybody's moved to cloud, and then talent. Um, if you think about um, the uh, whole idea around moving to cloud, and, and I'm sure the financial services industry found this as well, we had just moved um, a, a lot of our infrastructure to cloud, which allowed us during COVID to move 20,000 call center people working from home in a two weeks, three weeks time frame. Without the the move to cloud and that digital aspect of our journey we wouldn't have been able to do that.
0: Andrew, your thoughts on this?
2: You yeah, digitization
3: as a theme can can capture a huge uh, realm of, of different parts of a company. And uh, certainly the way I think about it is when it starts to really work, the people that you, you've, you've broken through are them and us between the digital teams and some of the legacy teams, be they IT professionals or business professionals. And what you're trying to do is get a, a digital mindset across the company. In, in, frankly, the pace of which people respond to things, and you know, we saw that um, you know, in response to COVID, where you know, the pace of which we were needing to implement, whether it's mortgage holidays, credit card payment holidays, there was a pace around what was happening that was almost digital at its best in terms of the pace of innovation. You know, try and solve together at high pace.
0: And in terms of culture in a business, did you take any specific approaches at the Co-op Bank to find solutions to drive change?
3: so certainly in the, in the context of the Cooperative bank um, i didn't really have a proper standalone digital capability, so um, I needed to re- react to that very urgently because so I bought in the new chief Digital officer and I took the resources that were working on aspects of our uh, digital banking and and put them together um, and then created that team as a, as, a, as a change agent for the whole company to start to get the teams working in a different way. And then after 18 months, I then integrated The change aspects of my technology organization doing a lot of our legacy it with our digital teams Um, and certainly you need to pace yourself with that but for me it's you need to create the center of excellence around the digital skills the digital capability and then what you need to do over time is then pull the rest of the company along towards that future and then try and create an organization where you're melding the best of, of pace that comes with a lot of the skills that are used in the more digital environment with bringing your teams with you as you go towards that future.
0: Vivek, do the disruptors have the upper hand when it comes to harnessing modern principles to drive rapid change?
1: The disruptors have that hand when the CEO realises that the company is in trouble and will do the right things, will you know, we'll, we'll focus on things like culture, will uh, focus on on allowing uh, you know all the people in the company to rise to their, to do, do what they do best and to innovate. So in many cases, the CEOs basically are cut off from reality, that they don't realize that their companies are in serious trouble, or they just want to pass a little bit of time until they retire and leave the problem with someone else. When that happens, these companies are going to become toast.
2: I think one of the things that was really impressive, Andrew, and I'd like your perspectives on how you achieved it is an organization that was built on purpose and values. You then mobilize by actually focusing more on purpose and values. Uh, it was almost like uh, you know they needed a uh, little bit of a reset or a visiting back to the future type of thing. How was that journey for you? You know, as you went uh, working with the co-op bank and used their purpose as a real competitive advantage
3: when you do turnaround transformation work, um, one of the key things is to understand the strengths of the company and what the key attributes are. And the Cooperative Bank is unique in the sense it's the leading ethical banking brand in the UK with a very strong history of cooperation. Certainly when I came in, there were some behavioral traits I needed to tackle which didn't feel like the best of cooperation. So I needed to tackle that. So I could see very clearly that I needed to double down on what was clearly a unique Um, cultural differentiator for the company Um, and and one of the reasons I focus on culture so much um, and I'd be interested to get uh, Vivek's take on this is one of the one of the features the world is changing so fast that there is a slight risk if you're not clear what you really do you know what a bank really does or what the strengths of your company are you have no basis to be able
1: to process the the pace of change as it happens. Andrew you're absolutely correct now uh, what worries me is that the, the type of changes that are coming next are going to be nothing like what we've seen before you know if you look at china for the future of finance uh, the banking system has virtually disappeared it's all wechat now i mean it's all and then the government itself is talking about bringing in digital currencies well why do you need banks then you may you know need to go and put money well you won't need cash anymore so uh, that's the type of disruption you're going to see worldwide and, you know, I mean, the good thing for you in the UK is that it's highly regulated and uh, consumers have been slow to adapt to new technologies. But the tsunami is coming of, of change and you've got to prepare for them. So if you can now adapt to the pandemic, it's a dress rehearsal for the type of changes that are next. And if you build the right culture, then the likelihood is that you're ready for it, that you will adapt again to the changes that are about to happen.
0: All right, thanks for the moment. And next, we'll talk about the part ethics plays in the innovation process. Now, we know that customers can drive change through responsible choices. What impact will this have when we emerge from this crisis? How much of the focus will be on ethical conduct? Andrew?
3: I think certainly when I think about banking and I think about my own personal journey through some of the changes in the industry um, it's very important that you're really clear what you're doing for your customer that you are seeking to do the right thing provide the customer with the best advice the best support you can do today um, and making sure that in doing that, um, you're using the ethical word, you're ethical in your behavior. And the reason I think about that in banking in particular is the, the asymmetry between the way the risks travel in the system where some minor defect around, say, the conduct of a team or the conduct of a, um, the, the structure of a certain product that has certain defects. They create such material risks later on, which have manifested typically in fines and have resulted in number of banks um, not surviving. You just have to have a continual watchword on are you making sure the behavior of your teams is right today? Are you building products that are right for customers today? So I think it's fundamental, certainly to banking, where you do make decisions today, quite often where the impacts of those decisions, good or bad, will manifest in three, four, five years down the line. So for me, it's fundamental to the way I think about banking, whether it's focusing on the customer first and then making sure that you're creating the right tone from a culture and behavior point of view across your organization.
1: You know, um, my view is that ethics is the single most important uh, ingredient you have to add to any company. In, in other words, ethics starts at the top and it can make or break companies. And it's a slippery slope that uh, once you see uh, senior executives start doing things that are just slightly unethical, it starts creeping downwards and the whole company starts you know, uh, crashing and burning. And they, there's no surviving ethical lapses. And you face ethical choices every day. Every day, there's a small issue that comes up that you have to deal with. And again, if you make the wrong choices, you're jeopardizing your future because you will never survive ethical lapses.
2: Yeah, I think, I think as we come out of this crisis, Justine, to your question, I think the initial focus will be on resilience and risk mitigation, because I think everybody is nervous about what happened and whether another shock like this could be survived. But very quickly following that, there is a question around trust. And the way that we all behaved as businesses in this period of the pandemic will be taken into account as to what our customers and our employees think as we come out of this. And I think the only way, uh, and you know, we're all going to focus on uh, our purpose and the ethics of how we do stuff, but I think we will be hold- held to account in how we behave during this pandemic. <laughs>
0: And looking more at the part that the customer plays in innovation, what role do they have in getting employees to understand the reasons for change?
2: I mean, so I
3: think, again, it goes back to where we started the conversation. I mean, you've got to have a lens in the world we're in today where you're listening very acutely to customer feedback. So if you're a bank, say, with legacy infrastructure, um, you know, and building on, uh, you know, customer will switch in the digital channel from shopping on Amazon to going into the bank account to bank, and they're expecting the same experience. And so the hard part is you need to create an environment where you are listening very intently to your customers um, to to harness it, and, and as I say, the, the positive um, uh, it can be seen as a challenge is the pace at which customers are their expectations are climbing exponentially in this digital age, and you need to make sure you're adjusting to that. So it becomes a given. You simply, in the world we're in today, have to have such a sharp lens on your customers, the feedback they're giving you, and then when you're running a business, then work out what you do to make sure that you're prioritizing the investments you make, the, ca- the uh, capability you're building, the innovation you're creating that supports that.
2: There's some research that we did with Professor Linda Grattan from London Business School, and the research was uh, talking to the people impacted by innovation and automation, actually. And what we found was a couple of things, firstly, the people whose jobs are going to disappear through automation, they actually want to be involved in the process of identifying how that's going to happen. They know it's happening, they don't want things to be done to them, they want to be engaged. The second thing is they actually need help in reskilling to something that's going to be new. One thing that we found is, you know, if you're if you're in a job as a consultant or an architect or a an auditor, when your job gets automated, you've already probably got the organizational skills to go reskill yourself and get yourself another role. If you're a call center agent, you probably haven't been exposed to know what you need to do. So they need help around that. And then the third thing that we found was that what they need to reskill into really needs to be defined at the national scale. And we've been talking about, you know, is there a national curriculum? Uh, because that's going to create national competitiveness. Who owns it? Who delivers it? Who defines it? I think there's a massive amount of work to be done, especially to help the, the employees who are going to be most impacted uh, through some of this innovation.
1: Justine, I want to add something about, about innovation and customers, that you listen to customers to a point. Customers will tell you what they want, but they don't know what they need. In other words, sometimes you have to assume that the customer is ignorant here and come up with radical new ideas which are not even, they haven't even conceived. And then what you do is you test them. So you build the prototypes, you let the customer experience it, you get their feedback and you iterate and evolve. But you start off with your own vision. You start off with what you believe is going to make a dramatic impact. So there's a fine balance here. You listen to customers sometimes, you don't listen to them other times. I don't think Steve Jobs or Elon Musk ever listened to customers. They did what they thought was right. And then they uh, learned as they went.
0: So you don't believe the customer's always right?
1: No, the customer is not always right. The customer is right only sometimes. You can, you know, build a product and show it to the customer and they'll give you feedback on it, but they can't conceive what that new product will be. They can't conceive a new technology. They can't conceive new ways of doing things. That's where the visionary, vision and the visionaries come into play.
0: So a big question for all of you, how do you innovate a large organisation during a time of uncertainty when there's resistance to change?
1: The CEO has to act like a dictator. I'm sorry, but, um, you know, workplaces are not democracies. And unless you have a leader who's willing to take risks, who's willing to disrupt everything, you're not going to have uh, the dramatic changes that are needed. You can't be a nice person when you're ruling uh, a a failing company. So, I mean, I I, I do agree with Vivek in the sense that what you do need is you need to be
3: very clear where you're taking the company and what you're trying to achieve. And you've got to work out what the key attributes are. I happen to, I don't like the dictator word, I like to create positive energy to the future, but I think you're right, you're right in the sense of what you need to do is anchor around the strengths of the company. And this is why, frankly, customer is a good access to use, purpose is a good access, ethical strength in the context of corporate bank, because you're using the strengths. So it becomes obvious for people that it's the right thing to do towards the company. But I think people can make a good point. If, if the leaders aren't clear where they're going with the company, then if it, you, you're not gonna make progress.
0: Finally, Andrew, from a personal point of view, leading transformation, are any lessons learned that you can share with us out of either failures or successes? The
3: most important thing I learned, just building what we're saying, is just be yourself. So certainly one of the things working in very diverse culture is certainly bringing yourself to work and being yourself in the way you lead and the way you, you drive things. So certainly I, I've learned a lot having as you work in different cultures initially trying to think how you adjust and how you become a chameleon in different culture and certainly what I learned was just be yourself, be really clear on what you're trying to do, anchor oneself on sound universal principles about what the objectives are and why you're driving those objectives and that's certainly worked as i've uh, you know, worked in the different roles I've done through my career.
0: Andrew, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
3: Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Well, that's it for this edition. But do subscribe to our series wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss an episode. We'll be back soon with another special business guest. Until then, from me, Justine Green, Vivek, Ishmael, and Andrew, it's goodbye. The Incremental to Exponential podcast. Back soon.